0: to another exciting episode of the Loins of History. (laughs) Uh, Sorry, Colin and I were just talking about, we're uh, talking about a lot of stuff. We're super, super amped for this episode uh, here on the Loins of History. We are so glad uh, that you are joining us, uh, picking out Picking us out from all those other podcasts out there, so we really appreciate it. And we've got a great episode l- lined up for y'all today. Uh, we're going to continue talking about uh, the Second Sino-Japanese War. Okay, so, Colin, what are our key takeaways for today? Jay, I appreciate your intros as always. <laughs> yeah, we were we were laughing about other
1: other history stuff, but uh, no, this is you're right. This is going to be. Uh, an exciting episode because I think what we're going to do is really try and examine like a different perspective of the Chinese during World War II. So, and I think like the central, the central takeaway or the theme, if you will, before we get into the key takeaways is I think the Chinese are often overlooked in World War II and their role, the role that they played in an Allied victory, and we're going to get into that a little bit more. And some of the key takeaways help support that. So, you know, the first one is, you know, the ground war in China was vital in just absolutely sapping the Japanese strength and resources. Um, you know, we've talked about it before, and we'll get into it. But the Chinese basically just kind of envelop and absorb you, and just wear you down. Uh, Lend-Lease um, was a program that really unleashed america's strongest weapon and that was its economy and production and it helped supply the chinese and uh we're going to get into a little controversies on how successful it was and what the chinese thought of it but as a program it did help the chinese and there's some really uh, important implications that occurred later because of the lend lease program and then american support for the chinese um moving forward into world war ii and then finally the china burma india theater is something that probably your average or amateur historian or just somebody who kind of knows about world war ii from you know us history or world history class probably doesn't know much about but on the american side and the American side, exactly, for the, Americans. The Brits
0: definitely know about it.
1: <laughs> they do. And actually, they played a really important role in this, and the U.S. That's right. kind of almost supported them. But I think this theater was, re- again, very vital in the Allied victory, and it's really overlooked. And here's kind of some – And I'm, what we're going to do is go through why it was so important and how it helped the Allies achieve victory. So that's kind of where we're at. Jay, I – Let's just let's just dive in and start talking about this. So I, I do want to give kind of an overview of where we're at right now. So we, we talked about the start of the Sino-Japanese War, a second Sino-Japanese War last week. The, the Japanese invade. They attack um, Nanking, and the rape of Nanking has occurred. They've occupied Shanghai. On the other side of the world, in Europe, Uh, In September of 1939, the Germans invade Poland, which officially kicks off World War II. But in doing some research for this episode, I saw there's actually a lot of historians that point to the second Sino-Japanese War as the start of World War II because it really sucked in the allies to this this conflict. Like the Russians saw the Japanese aggression as very dangerous on their border Um, – the united states obviously when we talked about last week with the open door policy like japan was very much a threat to that open door policy in china and now they're destabilizing the region so the us took an interest in there the british like we just mentioned had uh, still had colonial holdings in burma and uh, singapore and some of the areas in southeast asia so in india so like the allies as a whole were looking at this conflict very intently, and became more and more involved. So that's kind of what's going on here.
0: Yeah, I—I I mean, there's even. I think I mentioned this last episode. There's even an argument to be made that the official start of World War II was in August of 1914. <laughs> it just kind of <laughs> because, ran like, yeah, like even in between. Um, I mean. Even so, just focusing on the on the China and Japan part of it, when Japan capitalized on uh, defeating the Germans in World War One, uh, that that set the stage for for what happened here. Like there were there were territorial uh, concessions. You know, we 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 had almost a whole episode on uh, the Twenty One. I think it was the twenty-one demands that, that mm-hmm. China gave um, uh, Yuan Shikai and the in the Beiyang uh, government. So, like, there's just it's really hard to point to a definitive beginning of World War II. Uh, but I I think one of the main ideas that were drawn out in this episode is at least here in the West we kind of have a European centric view of uh, of what happened in World War II, but what happened in China um is just as significant as as what was going on in Europe. Yeah, already
1: starting on the tangents, but I mean think just to kind of compare the amount of conflict that was occurring between in this region outside of World War I, like going back to the first Sino-Japanese War, in a matter of thinking about it from like 1895 to 1945, that's about a 50-year period, the Japanese fought the Chinese in the first Sino-Japanese War, they fought the Russians They've invaded Manchuria. They had World War II. They've occupied Manchuria in 1931. There was also some skirmishes throughout that time, up until the Second Sino Japanese War. Like millions of people have died and been engaged in conflict over a 50 year period, you know, even outside of the major world wars. Like, imagine right now if we went back to 1972 and over a 50 year period, we were fighting. I don't know, the Canadians or somebody like very close to us in just a steady, Mm -hmm. constant conflict. So like this area has always been, you know, for this 50 year period has been a hotbed of conflict between the Japanese and the Chinese. So the conditions were set for a massive conflict worldwide within this area. And I think that I like that argument and I tend to agree with them that the second Sino-Japanese war was really the start of World War II because it just, everybody started getting sucked into this. It kind of, you know, then it gave a reason for the U.S. and other allies to get involved, uh, like the U.S. get involved in the European theater as well. So, yeah. the Germans didn't invade Poland for it. You know, what uh, two years uh, after the Japanese invaded the uh, the Chinese in 1937?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right around two years, thirty-seven and thirty-nine. Yeah. Can we let's let's talk about? It, it's going to feel like we're jumping ahead somewhat, but let's talk about the issue of giving credit to who won World War II. And it and it feels oh, yeah. like we're jumping ahead because this is obviously talking about the end. However, in discussing this question, we'll, you know, we talk about the contributions of each mm-hmm. nation during during the war. Uh so can you so you, before before we started recording, you were telling me about like different historians' opinions on the contribution of China to victory. So talk 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 to me about that. Yeah, no, this is really important because uh, Ron Emitter has a book called "The Forgotten
1: Ally," and it's about the Chinese contributions during World War II. And then I think Barbara Tuckman also has a book, uh, "Joseph Stilwell and the American Experience from uh, 1911 to 1945." Both of those books really do a very good job of analyzing the Chinese contribution. And, you know, Jay and I are Americans. So we have obviously a very American perspective on who won World War II. And if you ask any American who won World War II, we absolutely did everything and we won the war in Europe and the Pacific. exactly you know (laughs) you know in Hollywood every movie is about the western front in Europe and it's about the marines doing the pacific island hopping campaign Mm -hmm. and very little honestly I haven't really seen much up until very recently in America that is where we give credit like oh wow the soviets actually really bore the brunt of the German advance they paid dearly to stop the Germans now, kind of analogous to the Soviet contribution in the European theater, the Chinese did the same thing with the Japanese. So, the Japanese, I think that it was something around two thirds of their land forces were occupied in China um, throughout World War II. And it, so, if you think about that, 38, I think it was 38 of 51 divisions were in China at the time. So, that's over two thirds. The Chinese lost, and it was Ron Emitter that talked about this, that lost like 14 million people and some 80 million refugees were caused from World War II alone and the Japanese invasion. I think if they, the Chinese date it back to 1931, they lost $35 million. That is a That's massive wild. human price to pay. And then you look at some of the battles um, and what their contributions were. They lost a lot of battles in this. And it looked for a long time, really right up until like – 1945 that at they could lose and surrender at any point, um, so it they were in a very precarious position. But I would argue, kind of going to that first key takeaway, that their ability to absorb the Japanese. So the Japanese, if you look at their advance, they wanted to do really like three. You know, this is kind of my own analysis of it, but there's like three goals that they were trying to achieve. One, if you look at their advance, it goes both south and then west. And then they tried to blockade the Chinese to completely cut them off um, from Western allied support. So, you know, obviously how do we get uh, supplies to China? It's either got to go through the Burma Road, which the Japanese captured in 1942, or it's got to come by sea. And the Japanese Navy put a blockade and then they occupied the port city. So there's no way that we could get supplies. Logistical support there. And we'll get to actually how we did in a minute, but that was their goal. They wanted to consolidate their uh, puppet governments that they established. We already talked about Puyi and Manchukuo but then they also mm-hmm. established um, a man by the name of Jin Wei um, in Nanjing or Nanking. <clears throat> And if you remember Sun Yat-sen, Jingwei was one of the followers of Sun Yat-sen and one of his top officials. So he had a lot of influence within the Chinese, and he kind of broke away from the KMT and the CCP. And the Japanese used him as another puppet governor um, to occupy. So the Japanese were using these puppet governors in um, Nanking and uh, Manchuria in order to consolidate their gains so that they could use their resources in order to fuel their offensives in imperial Japan, Japanese army. And then they wanted to deal like, um, I think the, the term that Victor Davis Hansen uses in, um, one of his books is called shock battle. They wanted to absolutely take the Chinese out of the war. And they thought that they could do that by just absolutely devastating their military. If you look at uh, Shanghai Shek's um, Tactics initially He wanted to meet them head on And the Japanese just tried to pulverize them And then they eventually implement the uh, the three alls Basically Imprison them, kill them, destroy them So they wanted to absolutely wipe the Chinese out <clears throat> And destroy any um, Resistance To the Japanese occupation Through these yeah. just devastating campaigns
0: I remember reading somewhere Sorry I sh- We should probably get better about our sourcing <laughs> In these episodes, but I I read somewhere uh, that by the time the Japanese had invaded, you know, all the way into the heartland of China, China had only won one quote unquote battle with the Japanese. Like they were just getting their face punched in over and over. But I think you used the right word earlier they absorbed Japan. We've talked before. I'm, I, I won't beat the dead horse, but we've talked before about uh, the Chinese idea of the strategic retreat and how that's that's actually a tool to to win. You lose tactically, but you can win strategically um, uh, by doing that. Yeah. So China China suffered a lot of losses at the hands of uh, at the Japanese, and they still still came out on top.
1: Yeah, I mean, you look at one of the battles that you mentioned. So you know, initially it started off. We've already talked about the rape of Nanking, but then it was the Battle of Shanghai, where the Chinese were like, Well, we're going to attack and try and push the Japanese out. Well, then the Japanese counterattacked with an amphibious landing, basically surrounded the city, went house to house, and started absolutely wiping out the Chinese. The Chinese then had to flee as quickly as possible uh, to get out of there. And there was like over a million troops. And I think that's one of the things when I was, I was trying to point. I was trying to make is the amount of manpower that the Japanese had to utilize in the forces involved over a million troops were involved in the battle of Shanghai alone. And then the Chinese lost tens of thousands. They had to retreat out of Shanghai. Then there was the battle of, and I apologize if I can't pronounce this correctly, it's tires shuong um that was the hmm. first chinese victory and it really was not um a big victory it was uh yeah. it was very it was kind of small but to your point about absorb you know this being absorbed the japanese thought they were invincible so they began attacking the chinese town and the, they completely ignored these thousands of quote, unquote, farmers that were just out and about, and they just went headlong into the city. And it turns out the farmers were actually guerrillas. And so the Chinese were able to basically envelop the Japanese without the Japanese being ready. Um, and, you know, the Japanese really, if you look at their losses, were not great, but it destroyed this myth of invincibility. And it, I, you know, I think a lot of the CCP, specifically Mao kind of looked at that and it was like, this is how we need to fight. We need to draw the Japanese out and utilize guerrilla tactics.
0: Yeah. So I want to bring it back to the question of who gets credit for winning World War II here. Oh, yeah. Thanks for bringing it back. Otherwise, we're about to go. (laughs) (laughs) No, it's all good, man. Um, Because – so it's worth talking about the Soviets real quick because I think the main reason why there is – maybe not a question, but why there's an issue in talking about who won, because we all know in the immediate aftermath of World War II, uh, you know, less than five years after the fact, we were already fighting a quote unquote war against communism. Uh, You know, the Korean war was when things really started to get kicked off, but it wasn't the whole reason why Truman committed troops in the Korean war was because we were afraid of of communism. So, like the Cold War, in the immediate aftermath of World War II, was a thing. We were we the collective West were not inclined to give the Soviets any credit. <laughs> uh, and so, I think it's more than just like national ego. Like, of course, that's part of it, right? Like, of course, within the in the press. Uh, and just like talking to your grandpa Joe. You're gonna say like, you know, the Americans, you know, the Yanks did a great job. You know, we did it. And if you were in London uh, or in you know Cambridge, you would hear the exact same thing on the Brits, like we saved the world again. Like it's not a very good British Ch- accent by the way. <laughs> um, yeah, I Ooh, mate. my accents are terrible. I <laughs> might <mate>. I'm British. <laughs> uh, anyway um yeah sorry <laughs> terrible with the terrible with the <laughs> accent <laughs> sorry to our british listeners about just butchering your accent no you yeah. know what You're,
1: you you kind of bring up a good point and it
0: Go ahead.
1: it's interesting looking at the the perceptions that americans had now that's now we have this idea that we really are only now starting to look at the other contributions of the allies but at the time you know, the Roosevelt administration looked at Chiang Kai-shek and Mao Zedong, and they're like, who, who do we back here? They're like, okay, Chiang Kai-shek is not exactly, like, the best candidate. He won support from the from the U.S. Um, and the British to a lesser extent because he was willing to fight the Japanese. Um, at least that's what our perception was. So, you know, the Roosevelt administration sent um, – General Stillwell, Joseph Stillwell, or, or also known as Vinegar Joe. And we'll, we'll get to why he got that nickname in a second. But they sent him to basically be his advisor and advise him on how to fight the Japanese. But then Stillwell hated him. that He and Chiang Kai-shek hated each other. Um, he felt that he was kind of arrogant and incompetent really had no care for like the common Chinese person. So he hated him and he actually favored the CCP and looked very favorably on the CCP. And then back to the Roosevelt administration, their patience with Chiang Kai-shek after a few years waned considerably because he was not a successful against the Chinese. B, he was very busy fighting with the CCP internally. Yeah. We mentioned that you know back after the, the United Front, I think last week and the, the week before that, they had no trust of each other. They were both fighting each other. They would have to station border guards to defend themselves against the CCP or the KMT. That they, they lost a lot of patience because the US was looking at like, hey, your job is to fight the Japanese. You're not winning. You're being very unsuccessful. So their support for him waned, but then they still couldn't go out and be like, hey, I'm going to support this Mao guy in the CCP what do we do here? Um, so they were kind of in a precarious spot where they didn't really like any of the leaders. So it's, of course, afterward, even though Roosevelt, I th- he said that, you know, he viewed China as one of like the four policemen kind of moving forward in these allies, like a key ally moving forward after World War II, they still weren't going to give them any credit because they're like, well, <laughs> we don't like this Chiang Kai-shek guy. Do we give him credit? Well, we definitely don't like Mao. To your point about the Soviets and uh, communism, like, well, we can't give them any credit either. Nope. So it, it's been a very persistent. Um, you know, this dates all the way back to the late '30s.
0: Yeah, I think it wasn't until after the collapse of the Soviet Union, when they're you know in the '90s in uh, in the 2000s, where there was a period of relative détente between the United States and Russia. That. We were kind of allowed to talk about Russian contributions to um, to World War II. I I still remember being a history, uh, you know, a history undergrad, and I had a professor whose his expertise was more on like foreign policy. So from the from the diplomatic, not necessarily the military side of the house, but he he took a very strong stance on basically saying Russia won, like Russia full stop won World War II. Um, And, you know, he would talk about how like the Russians were the the first ones into Berlin. Uh, The, the contribution, or you can see the Russian contribution because um, you know, the allies, we liberated France, whereas Russia, quote unquote, liberated, <laughs> they did and not then, liberate, and then occupied. <laughs> <laughs> they occupied half of Europe. Like, you know, Europe is more than just France and Germany. Like there's all, there's Poland, there's Ukraine, there's the Baltic States, there's, um, you know, the Scandinavian countries, there's the Balkans. Like there's a huge amount of stuff that the Russians, quote unquote, liberated slash occupied, um, Whereas we we liberated France and Belgium, kept, Luxembourg, kept the UK from the Netherlands. Collapsing. Right. And so it's like clap clap yay, yay allies. And then secondly, I remember him talking about in Japan and uh um this this always stuck with me because he said he's like, Did the Japanese surrender after we dropped the second atomic bomb? And no. the answer to that question is no, they did not. Uh the it's here in the United States in particular, we're like, oh, we dropped that second nuke, and they were like, we can't do this anymore. So we surrender. That's not exactly how that happened. Now, yes, those two events did occur within close proximity to one another, but the Japanese surrendered like the day after the Soviets declared war on them. That's what, like, that was, I, it's, I hesitate to say that's why, because to be clear, I don't 100% agree with my former professor here. Uh, who's an, just an awesome dude, anyway? But, um, but the but the point is made that we don't give the Russians or the Soviets, in particular, enough credit in in end, in ending the war. In particular, I say all that to say that has carried on to China even today, where um, we within the West, I don't think we recognize the contributions. Um, of the Chinese, of the Chinese people in particular, against what they were doing and their sacrifice, you know, you said 17 million people died um, uh, fighting fighting the Japanese. So So also wanted to add from the Chinese perspective, what how they see who won World War II lest lest anyone accuse me slash us mm-hmm. of saying, you know,' we're these you know we' these self-centered uh historians and the Chinese just they have it right because I just want to make a comment. the Chinese are doing the exact same thing today as a matter of fact, they're even worse than than we are <laughs> Surprise. Uh, I, I think yeah i think I think i've I've mentioned before in this episode. I've had the pleasure of of talking to a few Chinese immigrants here in the United States, and they didn't even know there was another war going on. <laughs> they had no idea that Japan has ever fought a war with the United States ever. Uh, uh, one one friend of mine in particular, I was talking. And she even mentioned. I mean, she she was a Chinese immigrant. She's here in the United States, um, and we were talking about Japan. And I was like, "Yeah, it's kind of funny how um, the United States and China had a common enemy, and we we were fighting a war against Japan at the same time." And she looked at me and she was like, "What are you talking about?" <laughs> And I was like, I was like, wait, you, you never heard of, of Pearl Harbor? And she was like, I don't know what you're talking about. And she's lived in the United States for like 20 years, um, not maybe not, not quite, maybe not quite
1: that long. But I don't want to, you know, put an indictment on the American American education system. But if I was to ask the average, like, just average American, like, hey, what was going on during World War II in you know what was the the China Burma India theater? They'd be like, what? they they would probably have
0: Okay, that's a fair point.
1: <laughs> I would say it's for di- very different reasons. One of them is clearly propaganda from the Chinese. One of them is just sort of a lack of self-awareness or just awareness in general of what else was going on outside of the American front. Either way, to your yeah. point, it is kind of funny that World War II and I'm, you know what, I'm sure in the Soviet in the Soviet, you know, era of Russia, they probably did not talk about the United States. You know, doing lend-lease and supplying all this money and um, supplies to the allies against the Germans and the Japanese. So, you know, it yeah. was like, w- what was the Western Front? You know, what what were the what was the US doing? They didn't do anything. We we paid for it in blood.
0: At least, at least in the West, we know it as World War II. I mean, even in Russia, they call it the Great Patriotic War, uh, which obviously is a very, you know. Russo-centric view of, of what was going on uh, at that time. But, but again, to the point about China, like to me it was fascinating that f- from China's perspective, they, like they just beat the Japanese. Like there was no mention whatsoever of them, of the United States helping them fighting a war and And I think, with regards to, you know, this podcast and the loins of history, like when it comes to u s. and Chinese relations today, in the grand span of history, it's important to remember, like we've helped one another out in the in the very recent past. Now, I love Japan. I'm a huge fan of of Japanese society. Um, and and culture, you know, it's there's just something so endearing about the Japanese people. You know, we've seen uh, in the World Cup, you know, that tradition of where Japanese people will just clean the stadium up after every match. The the Japanese soccer team, I remember seeing this during the the last, uh, I think it may have been the Olympics, where they were cleaning out their locker room. And left their locker room like immaculate <laughs> when they were done. Uh, like I love, I love Japan. Don't get me wrong, and I'm not, and I'm not trying to say that we should continue to demonize uh, the Japanese and and what Japan did during World War II in order to foster a sense of unity between America and China. But nevertheless, it is it's important to remember, like there's nothing that says the United States and China are natural enemies. Like we've been allies before. Um, Heck, when the United Nations was formed, the United States and Britain were, were some of the key voices that argued for China to be on the UN security council. And that's why, you know, they're there today. They went from being, um, you know, getting beat up by the Japanese and really getting beat up by everybody. <laughs> the century of humiliation to being, in a sense, one of the top five countries in the world. Um uh you know, they're in and, and to this day, they're they're on the the UN Security Councils, albeit it's a it's a different China that's <laughs> that's on the Security Council, but China nevertheless. So it, it is kind of interesting to look at though, uh,
1: back bringing it back to them absorbing the losses. Just going through these battles, and, and I'm not going to list every single one of them because it's an exhaustive list. I, I kind of just want to paint big blue arrows, if you will, where the Japanese basically ran through China along the coast. I Before I studied for this episode and this really the series in general. I had no idea how much manpower the Japanese had to use. And simply from a, you know, in China, from a mathematical standpoint, if two thirds of the army is occupied elsewhere, similar to the Russians, I'm not going to say that the war outcome within the U.S. versus Japan would have been different, but the path to that outcome would have been very different. Like had the China, the, the, the Roosevelt administration really believed that the Chinese could capitulate at any point. Um, mm-hmm. and they were very, very close, to be completely honest. I mean, they already had two puppet governments set up in China. There was really not a lot of will to fight within, you know, the KMT was like we've talked about this before, Shanghai Chiang Kai-shek was is in like a no-win situation. Right. Had they collapsed and surrendered and allowed occupation from Japan and puppet governments to be set up they could have diverted a third of those forces to fight the U S and suddenly mm-hmm. we're fighting a lot more Japanese. Suddenly, you know, Tarawa becomes occupied by 20,000 more Japanese soldiers. Would yeah. we have been able to take it? Maybe, you know, the, the million men a hundred years to take the Island. It, that might've been a true prediction. I'm referring to a, yeah. a, you know, Japanese general and what he said about, you know, taking a Tarawa and would never be taken basically, but
0: yeah. Yeah, that
1: that may have, I guess the point I'm trying to make is that may have been a reality where the price the U.S. would have had to pay to win would have been much, much higher.
0: Yeah, for sure. And and troop movements and like reinforcing certain places in World War Two was like the name of the game, especially in the Pacific theater. So having all those Japanese forces bogged down in China and 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 in China remaining in the fight uh was was huge speaking of troop movements
1: yeah. like I kind of want to get into the the lend-lease and the impact it had so like oh, I said yeah. the 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 Chinese were losing badly like they won one kind of minor victory and then there was a couple battles where they lost but they were more of like strategic victories if you will the strategic retreat kind of like the um Zhang Tioshan campaign where basically they the Chinese just got, wiped out, not wiped out, they got, they took extreme casualties and the Japanese lost like a couple hundred, but the Japanese were unable to occupy like Northwest China and move into the mountains, which is where a lot of the CCP was hiding. Um, So like they weren't able, they just weren't, even though it was a, it was kind of like a Pyrrhic victory, if you will, the Japanese won, they, it was like 10 to one losses, but they still couldn't move forward and occupy this area because they, you know, logistically speaking, they couldn't move through the mountain passes anymore. Um, but the Japanese, and I'm sorry, I lost my train of thought there talking about that, but back to lend-lease, the Chinese were losing. The Burma Road was captured in 1942. So the Burma Road is important mm-hmm. because that was one of the key supply lines where the U.S. was moving supplies into China. And lend-lease was basically, you know, in 1939, there was the Neutrality Act, it was a uh, policy of cash, uh, cash carry. Basically, the Allies had to pay cash for weapons and supplies and things like that. War gets very expensive. It's very difficult to pay cash for all of the things that you need because coming up with that cash is tough. So what the Lend-Lease Act was, FDR instituted, was basically you can pay us in any form that we deem necessary um, and you can defer that payment until a later date. So basically, we were found a way to give weapons. And um, I think... In today's dollars, we gave away like six hundred ninety billion dollars, and that was, I think, that was as of two years ago. So it's probably over seven hundred billion dollars worth of um, supplies and weapons to our allies, and a lot of that, not as much as the UK and France and um, Russia and the European theater, because we had a, a Europe first policy. But we spent a lot of that in China, and it had to come through for a while the Burma Road. The other way, so when that was captured. <laughs> The other way that we were able to supply the Chinese with weapons and uh, supplies was over the hump. Mm. The hump. (laughs) That's the Himalaya Mountains. We had to fly them from India. So if you you think about the Mm -hmm. old British Empire, they occupied India. They occupied Burma. They occupied like Singapore and some of these areas in Southeast Asia. Um, We had to fly it using volunteers over the hump to fly and that became incredibly difficult if i think people have this kind of we take for granted logistics now like i ordered it on amazon why isn't it flying via drone to my doorstep like <laughs> moving things where roads are occupied roads and passages are occupied by enemy forces it's not as simple as like oh just put in a plane plane to fly it Planes have to have fuel. Fuel has to get to the airfield. They have a have a place to land. They're also having enemy occupied or enemy occupied airspace. Like it's incredibly difficult. And you can only carry so much stuff that gets used up. And um, so it, it's actually really, you know, an amazing feat that we were able to do that. But the Chinese, this kind of goes into like Shanghai Shark not being super popular with the Roosevelt administration, they were perceived as being kind of ungrateful, um, or they were always asking for more and like, it wasn't good enough. Like they wanted grants. We were giving them infields because we just didn't have a, we didn't have enough grants for our own troops, but like, we were like, we don't even have the ammo. We don't have enough ammo to give you. So we have to give you a gun that you can shoot that won't go through as so much ammunition. Plus you guys, it's not like you guys are actually using them effectively anyway. So we're just going to give you these old infields that we have plenty of supply. Like that created a rift. Even though we were giving them all this stuff, it kind of created this rift between Ching, Chiang, Kai-shek, and the Roosevelt administration, which further put them at odds and kind of made us want to say, like, "Well, we won the war."
0: Right. No. So no. That's that's the perfect note of what did you to transition on because there's so many similarities between us supplying the Chinese in World War II to us supplying the Ukrainians today, in in on. On the issue of getting credit, I have, I have friends, super smart people, who I've heard them say, the Ukrainians could not have beat the Ru- or, the Ukrainians could not have beat the Russians, you know, in the last uh, ten months, if it wasn't for aid given by the United States. And uh, and the United States now they don't say this, but they're implicitly saying the United States needs to pat itself on the butt, and 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 give give itself a high five, because we, the United States, are beating the Russians um, with what we're doing. And all, all I can say is that's garbage. <laughs> um, don't get me wrong. You know, I think when we when we did our Russia Ukraine, Colin and I have disagreed and, and somewhat continue to disagree on what are what the extent to our support to Ukraine should be. I personally am hugely in favor of giving even more assistance to Ukrainians. Um, I, I frankly should have. I believe we should have gotten military involved from the get go, but that's a different debate for a different time. <laughs> we'll save that. Nevertheless, <laughs> right. Nevertheless, I th- I don't think the United States should be patting itself on the butt for giving, you know, what we've given the Ukrainians. Rather, I when it comes to credit, I believe we should be looking at the Ukrainian people. And the Ukrainian military in particular, and look at them and go, yo, we didn't think you could do it, <laughs> but by God, you did it. <laughs> like, what's uh, uh, you know, it's like, you crazy bastards. <laughs> you did it. Crazy. You did it, you crazy
1: bastard. That's a scene from yeah. the movie Rush. You've ever seen it. Great movie. Yeah. About totally, racing, yeah. totally not historical. Well, it is historical history of racing, but totally not military
0: you did it you but that's it you like <laughs> like okay did the united states aid to the ukrainians like have an effect or like it's not just the united states like nato or, across the board um uh you know nato aid to ukraine did it have an effect of course but i just i can't help but think all credit all of it. Like, we should not be patting ourselves on the butt. Rather, we should be, like, thanking God that the Ukrainians actually give a crap about their country. Because if they didn't, it doesn't matter how many bullets, bombs, tanks, planes we give them. That's not happening. Uh, or they're Please, see, it, they're not see, winning, right? See the Vietnam War. Well, and see, Ch- and see World War II in China. This is why I'm bringing this up. Because, um, like... Yeah, we gave them a bunch of supply and and um, to a very big extent. Sorry, that's my English, not great. I don't speak <laughs> a, the English that good. <laughs> um, like, See in English, tw- Bobby. you Speak English. <laughs> 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 oh, I love it. That's King of the Hill, right? That is King of, King of the Hill. Hill. African King of the Hill is the most underrated. Underappreciated um, TV show, probably of all time. Uh, anyway, uh, because like if the Chinese people didn't fight the Japanese, it doesn't matter how much aid we gave them. Uh, that war, oh, w- we weren't winning that war. Sorry to to finish Marler's thought. Um, and apologies for being so scatterbrained, but. The war, like the strategy of the war, became how to get China supplies. The uh, when the the Japanese very quickly occupied all the port cities um, uh, in China. We started giving aid through Vietnam and through Burma. They occupied uh, northern Vietnam just to prevent us from getting aid to them. Uh, and then they invaded, um, uh, Burma. Uh, and people, people forget this fact. Uh, the Thai government, what's now known as the kingdom of Thailand. It was called Siam back in the, back in that day, but Thailand, they were allies with the Japanese. So through the help of the Thais and, um, uh, um, you know, through Vietnam, Cambodia, and Laos, Japanese invade uh, Burma just so they can cut off the supply line. Um, I, I did not that's know when-
1: that I, – I, you just told me something. I didn't know that the – Siam, you know, then Siam was allied with the Japanese
0: – I, yeah, they they became part of the greater East Asian co prosperity sphere. I I don't know uh, which was the Japanese like collective. You know, it's their equivalent to NATO or the Warsaw Pact. Like it was Japan's in charge, but here's all the puppet governments and other friendly governments that that fall under that. I don't know the extent of. How much the Thais fought, like militarily, but they became allied with the Japanese and they allowed the Japanese to use like their ports and their facilities and blah 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 blah. In the in the China Burma India uh, theater, um, uh, yeah. So like the whole reason why the Japanese invaded Burma was explicitly, like you said, Colin, to close the Burma Road. They did not want. Um, the the Chinese to continue uh, getting supplies, which just a book recommendation for our listeners. uh, Viscount Slim, who was the the British field marshal, wrote a book called "Defeat into Victory," Um, and that's that is a fantastic book on exactly what it sounds like how the how the Brits like turned the tide um with the help of their the Indians like, oh man, that's a whole other thing of <laughs> the Indian and Sikh uh contributions. Um and I'm sure Muslims uh you know in that in that part of the world uh contribution to uh to victory.
1: I, I was gonna say that's kind of going back to your Ukraine analogy. I think it's always important to recognize the value I think it's important to note. Well, I agree with you, what you're saying about Ukraine. Like the credit needs to go with the Chinese. It wasn't like military success that necessarily like won them that part of the war. It was that they paid for it in blood and they were willing yeah. to do it. Like to your point, we should definitely give them more. Cre- the The side that paid a heavier blood cost, human cost, definitely deserves more credit than us saying like, "Hey, here's a bunch of guns that." you're going to pay us back for it later anyway. You know what I mean? Like it, it just, we paid dearly in World War II in the Pacific, but I'm talking specifically within this conflict. If we're going to say like, Hey, we're supplying you guns because of us. It's like, well, we had 14 million people die. Right. You know, let's temper your, cre- your level of credit.
0: Yeah. Um, it's, it's kind of funny, you know, to kind of, Give a teaser for what our our next few episodes are going to be like. Um because the Chinese Civil War, one, it didn't really stop even during World War II or the Second Sino-Japanese War, but it like really kicked back off once World War II was done. And by nineteen forty-nine, the communists had taken over all of China. Save Taiwan. <laughs> um when it comes to US and, and Chinese relations, it was it was difficult to give China a lot of credit, like because the same Chinese that we weren't helping, that we weren't on the side with, and they're communists, which we now don't like, you know, and fast forward to 1949, 1950, it was super hard to give them credit because the same Chinese weren't in charge. And now, there was, until uh, the Nixon administration, in, uh, when Henry Kissinger, and that'll be a great episode, talking about detente in the 70s, or rather, rapprochement. One of my favorite.
1: <laughs> it's a little bit of French. You French. can't speak English very well, but you can speak can't, French. I can't
0: speak the English real good, but I sure do know how to talk like them Francois do. <laughs> I may not have a good uh, British accent, but my Southern accent is impeccable.
1: <laughs> it really is. Touch of the mountains in there. Yeah, That's right. I, I do want to, so talking about giving credit, back to the Lend-Lease Act real quick. We've gone on a big tangent there, but one of the things we're talking about credit and, you know, like the Chinese paid in blood, but this Lend-Lease Act unleashed a weapon, and I mentioned it during the key takeaways, the American economy and the ability for the Americans to produce was talk about something that was like these tipping points, you know, the Soviets and the Chinese paid, you know, they had human resources to just go through. They could, they could expend that. We were able to produce so many weapons, so many supplies, so many aircraft and equipment you know beans bullets and uh band-aids w- w- yeah, i think that's the, the military term for it but like we were able just to produce it the japanese had like no answer for that the germans had no answer for that we could they could right. not match our ability to produce and like lend Lee's kind of kicked that into high gear because we we're like hey we're gonna get paid for this we can produce it and so like i think we were it was a B seven? I think in one of the previous episodes, I said B-29s was actually like B-17s. We were able to roll off a production line like one per day. You think mm. about that. Even for today's standards. That's wild. That's amazing. And we were like, you know, the Ford factories were like, oh yeah, we'll just start producing military stuff. You know, and they just converted right there. Um. So like lend lease, I would say that is a point, like it's kind of a tipping point where suddenly now – Instead of speaking in terms of like, well, there's these military victories. Now we're talking like we're bringing in the um, the full weight. I think it's like a Clausewitz esque term of like the full weight of a nation's resources coming to bear in warfare. Like we're no longer just using armies; like we're using the nation's economy to overpower you, and that has been a, a tactic that the U.S. has used. Over the past 80 years, like we absolutely use our, you know, the dollar, our ability to produce our economy and to throw our weight around. It's I mean, it's how the Cold War ended, et cetera, et cetera. All that to say, it started here with the Lend-Lease Act and producing, supplying the Chinese, supplying the U.S. military to defeat the Japanese.
0: Yeah, I am. I'm a big fan of John Mearsheimer. Even though I disagree with him in certain certain areas, uh, but Mearsheimer's uh, book, "The Tragedy of Great Power uh, Conflict Politics," I forget. The Tragedy of Great Power Conflict. Sorry, I I just said I'm a big fan of him. I should probably know the name of his book <laughs> that I'm about to quote. But anyway, he talks about how economic capability necessarily translates into military capability and nations are not able to maintain strong militaries if they don't have a strong economy. Uh, Or maybe a better way to put it, the strength of your military is necessarily dependent upon the strength of your economy. So if you have, you know, a small GDP, you're only going to be able to maintain a strong or a small military for, for China. I think one thing that they realized after Mao um, passed was we have got to get our economy back on track um, if we ever have any hope of having a strong military. Um, So now, what that looks like today is you know this regular we talked about in our last episode this regular 6% growth over time and and now china is like real big and they're continuing to increasingly grow confident in their military capabilities but and here this is the big but here <laughs> their economy is still Frankly, nowhere, cl- nobody's economy is—and I talked about this last episode—nowhere close to the United States economy. Therefore, I get frustrated with, with the United States, <laughs> my own country, when we, when we talk about restricting ourselves for stupid reasons. Um, when, like, a, a term that I've heard quite a few people use— Is whether or not the United States is going to have its kid gloves on, Uh, and if the United States takes the gloves off, if we stop restricting ourselves, like there is, there is not a country on the face of this planet that can match our industrial, thus military capability, Uh, and like maybe one day, you know. I'm not so arrogant as an American to think that, that, you know, this will be the next thousand year Reich. Like, yes, like in time things could change, but as it, but as it stands right now, like there's, it's just not, there's no one else that can match our industrial capability. We are the third most populous country on this planet, um, and when you when you combine that, just the sheer number of people, you, you know, per capita, <laughs> per capita GDP here, um, combined with our technological capability, our educational institutions, our standard of living, um, like even today. If we really wanted to, there's not another country on the face of this planet, Russia or China included, that could match our, our military capability. And China knows it, and that's why they're trying to trying to catch up to us. So, to the C, you know, to the
1: point about the CBI being so important for America and really the Allied victory. What you just said it, it triggered the thought: like China knows our military capacity. The Japanese in World War II did as well, mm. so moving into like during the 1940s like the japanese were trying to prevent the us from entering the war like they they were sending diplomats to the us they were trying to negotiate into 1941 you know i think that's when we issued the the lend lease within china started it was like in may of 1941 so like 6 months or do some math 7 months before pearl harbor is when we started the lend lease to china Like the Japanese understood the American, like we've already been the largest producer in the world, even with the depression, like going back to what, remember if we, one of the previous episodes about the American economy since like the 1890s. So the Japanese looked and they understood the U.S. ability. That's why they tried to knock us out of the war in, um, with Pearl Harbor. So, and people kind of lose this, this fact. So like they were winning in China, they were pushing the Chinese To the brink of surrender, the U.S. is thousands of miles away on the other side of the Pacific. And if you've ever looked at a map of the Pacific, there's like very tiny islands that dot the the Pacific Island Hopping Campaign. Most of our fleet, the Pacific fleet, actually, I think all of it was in Pearl Harbor at the time. They wanted to knock the U.S. out in Pearl Harbor because Hawaii is like halfway in between. So it's still thousands of miles from the U.S., so they wanted to attack Pearl Harbor. And by the way, they actually launched almost simultaneous invasions of the Philippines where the U.S. were involved and other small islands. Like they captured Singapore around the same time. I think it, it was like and seventh, Guam and Wake Island, too. Guam and Wake Island, too. Like I think those were on the 8th. So it was like Pearl Harbor was attacked the 7th. Within a day, all these other islands were
0: attacked. And it was the point was well, to knock the U.S. out. So it, with, Hawaii is east of the international dateline. So it's the 7th in Hawaii time by the 8th in Japan. <laughs> okay, that's why it says the 7th and 8th. So, so yeah, it was simultaneous. Like Their, their timing was, purposes, in, was perfect. For all intents
1: and purposes, it was a, a, a simultaneous attack across the Pacific. They did this because if you look at the Germans, the Germans – Going back to World War I, recognize that a two-front war is a losing strategy. So World War I with the Schlieffen Plan, if you remember, they had they knew that they had 72 days to knock the French out of the war to fight the Russians before the Russians mobilized. That's why they're like, we have six weeks to get to Paris before we have to consolidate, turn around and get to Russia. World War II is the same thing. They're like, we have to get to Moscow before the winter. They didn't. The Japanese saw the Germans and they said, we have to knock the U.S. out quickly so we can refocus on China and finish up what we're doing in China. So all that to say, my point is the Chinese were able to suck so many resources that the Japanese kind of panicked and attacked the U.S. To be completely honest, the U.S. was very against the war Um, up until Pearl Harbor. I saw one statistic, it was like almost ninety percent of people were against involvement. And it wasn't until Pearl Harbor that we wanted to get involved. So to be honest, it was really a strategic the China the Japanese could have prevented that and just not attacked the US a little bit longer, and they might have been able to force a surrender. It's kind of something to think
0: about. So
1: I went on a diatribe right there.
0: But no, it's fine. Know. So it's funny it's funny you mentioned that about like the majority of public opinion being against entering the war, because this is this is just how Americans think. Like we are naturally isolationist because, frankly, like we've got two big oceans, not not worried about the Canadians, not Foreign necessarily worried not about the Mexicans, public,
1: public, uh, public opinion.
0: Right. 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 Um, like we can afford to be naturally isolationist. I get it. Um the issue, and this is why I believe we should have been more militarily involved in in Ukraine from the get go, was wars risk escalation. No matter what you do to try to prevent it. So going back to World War II here, just from a uh, a Japanese standpoint, if like hindsight tells us that if we would have, you know declared war on japan prior to pearl harbor i i don't think this would have ever happened but let's just thought experiment here um if that would have occurred it would have it was highly unlikely that pearl harbor would have ever occurred if we would have actually been on like a combat readiness footing there's no freaking way the the japanese would have gotten Anywhere near Pearl Harbor, like we would have been cruising around. We wouldn't have had to fight them back, right? Like we wouldn't have had to roll back. The Philippines
1: were overrun because, you know, we we were like you said, it was like we got hit in the mouth and we were in a very reactive posture, kind of like like two boxers. One guy just got stunned and he's trying to regain his footing. Well, you know, the Philippines were taken very shortly after – Pearl Harbor because we were just, we couldn't resupply. We couldn't, we couldn't combat the Japanese and we didn't retake those until 1945.
0: I don't, I don't have the statistic on hand, but the Bataan Death March, like, what is it like some 2000, maybe 3000 people, Americans died at Pearl Harbor. I want to say even more than that died at, in the Bataan Death March, uh, in the Philippines. And that's just Americans. That doesn't count the Filipinos that died. Um, Uh, during that, uh, yeah, during that horrible, uh, experience, um, uh, there, the point being is like, we, we refrained from getting involved in World War II until we got punched in the mouth because we were like, we don't want Americans to die in a war that doesn't concern us. My, my main argument in applying this to Ukraine now is like, even if the war doesn't concern you at the time, that doesn't mean that in the future, the war won't become concerned with you <laughs> in the future. Um, like, even if you don't want war, sometimes war wants you. And, and that's what happened in in Pearl Harbor. Like in retrospect, if we would have declared war on the Japanese, yes, Tens, if not hundreds of thousands of Americans would die in that war. They did, but less would have died because Pearl Harbor would have never happened. Right. Um, conversely, like here, when it comes to Russia, Ukraine, like I'm not saying that world war three with Russia is inevitable. That's I'm not a prophet. I'm not a magician. I'm not a fortune teller. Um, as a matter of fact, I pray to God that world war three does not happen between uh, the United States and Russia. however, all I know is that the Russians are not they're nowhere close to pulling out of the Ukraine in the same way that the Japanese were nowhere close to pulling out of um, of China. So what that tells me is if if Putin like like Tojo and Hirohito, like they were bogged down in China, and they still escalated and escalated and escalated like it wasn't just a simple like you know they didn't think to themselves oh we're not going to attack anybody else until we finish this war with china they saw the only way to finish the war with china was by attacking other people i like i'm not in the heads of vladimir putin or shoigu or Gerasimov or serovkin the guy that's in charge of the troops in In Ukraine right now. I'm not inside their head. I don't know what they're thinking. But it's not historically fantastical to think that they're having discussions going, we can only win the war in Ukraine by escalating it outside of Ukraine. I mean, it is a known fact. They're very well aware that the main supply route into Ukraine is Poland in the same way that burma was the main supply route um uh into uh china it's poland for ukraine and if i was poland and i and i think they are this way but i don't i don't know any polish people i don't have any contacts in the polish government so i'm speculating but <laughs> if i was poland i'd be freaking the freak out
1: <laughs> i think they because are a little bit
0: because things can escalate, like that's just what history. Those, these are the lessons of war. This is the lessons of history. Like things can escalate when you don't expect it. On December sixth, literally nobody. Well, I take that back. There, you know, there were some navy uh, crypt, uh, crypt, cryptologic officers, what we call crippies. There were some navy crippies. Who, who were freaking out <laughs> uh, and there were people in the State department were like, oh crap you know because they were on the negotiation side but there's, like
1: there's a lot of there's a lot of I, I think in the movie Pearl Harbor they kind of even show that scene where they're like hey there's something on the radar here they're like ah radar is untrustworthy there' some there's some b-17s flying out and like there was yeah. they kind of knew that they're like something's going. Yeah, you're right. Like, I think there were some people that were freaked out, but they couldn't exactly quantify or point to any definitive proof. They're like the Japanese, the Japanese are coming and they, they made them. business right now. Yeah. But they're like, yeah, don't trust the radar. There's some B-17s flying out there. And I just remember that scene and I was like, that's kind of the illusion they're making to it.
0: Yeah. I, and by
1: the way, we moved our entire Pacific fleet and had them basically just like hanging out there, like totally exposed.
0: Yeah. Uh I guess to sum up Jay's opinion on military strategy and foreign policy is: Why wait to get punched in the mouth when you are the better boxer and can freaking destroy them like Mike Tyson said, <laughs> by punching them to, in the mouth?
1: It's like Mike Tyson. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the mouth.
0: Yeah, and I'm not saying like. I'm not saying we should declare war on China right now. I think that would be super dumb and uh and stupid. I'm not even the chance for us to get militarily involved in Russia was was on February 23rd of of this year. I'm I'm not convinced that we should just declare war on Russia right now. So that's not what I'm saying, folks. Rather, I'm just trying to push back uh against the idea That we should always wait until the United States is attacked. Yeah, sure, it gives us some kind of moral high ground. But at the same time, like, are the tens of thousands of dead Ukrainians glad that we're waiting for uh, our moral high ground? That NATO's waiting for its moral high ground right now? No. Um, And in the event that russia does something stupid against poland in my mind that's the most likely uh place um you know in the name of stopping the supply lines and all of a sudden you know some some depots in poland blow up from missile strikes you know are we going to look at one another and go oh man i'm super glad we didn't in- get involved earlier <laughs> like i don't i don't know because in the same way like when Pearl Harbor happened, uh, you know, and m- tens of millions of Chinese died, are we glad? Are we glad that we waited? I don't, I don't know.
1: So, well, it's almost like we should have gotten involved in like 1931 in uh, taking a more active policy stance toward Japan in 1931. It was like, hey, you're not just going to come into instead of Manchukuo. Like, no, you're not going to do that. That would have been probably a more apt time, but you know it you can't change it now you can only learn from it
0: yeah and sorry this is the last rant I'll, or the last thing i'll say but in the boxer rebellion we had no problem putting 20,000 we being the west 20,000 troops 5,000 US marines in beijing to protect our interests our embassies um in you know ni- in 1899 and 1900 against a military force that we thought was aggressive, the, Mm. the boxers, right. Uh, if, you know, if not to historically second guess too much, but, you know, in 1931, when they invaded Manchuria in 1935, when they further invaded Manchuria in 1937, during the Marco Prolo bridge incident, like I know it's the Great Depression like there was zero appetite for this but like would it have prevented the the Second Sino-Japanese War like if we knew what was coming and we said like here's 5000 US Marines in Beijing like go ahead Japan go ahead and do something stupid like give us a reason to to declare war on you when you attack our troops in Beijing they've been there before <laughs> they were there 37 years prior. It, w- it wouldn't have been far-fetched. I don't know. Conver- or similarly, not conversely, similarly, in in February of this year, if we would have put, you know, the 82nd Airborne or some brigade combat team in Kiev and said, go ahead, Russia. Like, you know, I almost imagine that uh, uh, one of my favorite scenes in cinematic history is Tombstone uh, when... Um, when uh, what is it? Wyatt Earp looks at him, and he's like, he's like, "Skin that smoke wagon." I thought you were <laughs> gonna like, say. Uh, I thought you were gonna talk about when he's like, "I'll be your huckleberry." <laughs> oh, another great scene. But like that, if I could translate Wyatt Earp into foreign policy, that would be it. It's like, it's like, go ahead, dude. Like, are you gonna do something, or are you gonna stand there and bleed? Because that's what Russia would be doing. Is like they. And it's not just Russia. Like, it's anybody. Um, I think I've talked about it before on this podcast. Like, during the Iranian hostage crisis, like, Ronald Reagan ran his campaign partially on, like, go ahead, Iran. Like, don't release our hostages. And the day I get into office, see what happens. And guess what happened? The day he was elected. (laughs) They were on a plane home. The next day, they were on a freaking, you know, they were being released. So, like these countries get away with this BS, like evil people get away with evil deeds when good people do nothing. And I'm sorry, but the West and the United States, like, I still believe that we are the good guys, uh, even though we have, uh, plenty of our own faults. Um, but nevertheless, we are still the good guys. And, um, yeah, this stuff happens because we decide to do nothing. Just
1: to to tie that that little dovetail into kind of what, <laughs> what we're talking about. And not not just within like the, the the conflict in China during World War II, but in general, and we, we sort of touched upon it, like the mission of the loins of history is not necessarily to go like line by line and talk to you as like a PhD, you know, like this is a PhD dissertation. About What happened and going through a lot of sources. It's to highlight historical events, trace a history of why and go to why it's important today. And mm-hmm. I think we've laid out a pretty good case as to like, hey, there were a lot of mistakes made by the US in the 30s. Like, Justin, what you're talking about, Jay, like in the 30s, there were some mistakes made by the US that led to further escalations that could have been prevented oh and by the way there's a lot of similarities happening now not just with China but also in other
0: parts of the world yeah Whew. complicated it's not easy I, I don't want to make it sound easy. like it's an easy it's an easy call uh to make uh but um but yeah that's it all right. I think that does it for us here on the Loins of History. Uh, great, great episode. Good conversation, Colin. Always a pleasure to, um, to chat with you about these things. Uh, for our listeners, I hope you enjoyed this episode as well. Sorry, I'm, I'm all juiced up <laughs> on, on, uh, on what to do uh, in Ukraine right now. But uh, anyway, yeah. Thanks. Thank you to our listeners for, for listening. Uh, we really appreciate you alls support. Uh, uh, if you, if you like what we're doing here, leave us, leave us a five-star review, leave us a comment. Uh, that definitely does, uh, does the, that is the best thing uh, that you can do to support this podcast. Uh, helps, helps us, helps the Spotify and Apple algorithms to know we're here and y'all like it. So do that if you leave if you leave a positive uh comment we will give you a shout out uh on our next episode so thanks to and if you leave a negative that,
1: one we'll still give you a shout out but we might have a mean we might be yeah. mean about it.
0: yeah we might be mean we might make fun of you i don't know um uh, i'm
1: kidding i'm kidding i'm not <laughs> we'll take your critique and and make ourselves better
0: yeah no we will take it yeah we will if it's if it's constructive criticism we will for sure uh, incorporate that into making this uh, podcast better for sure uh but yeah leave us a review we would greatly appreciate that uh we're also on social media you can you can give us feedback there we're on twitter facebook instagram all uh some version of the loins of history or loins of history uh You can find me on Twitter too. It's Jay of Loins of History. (laughs) Uh, And yeah, we appreciate you listening. Hope you enjoyed this episode and we look forward to seeing you next week on the Loins of History.